TYT Interviews. I'm your host, Cenk Huger. And we've got a great interview for you guys tonight. It's with Chris Tassin, he's the author of Crushing the Box. I don't think that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. I think that's exactly how you're supposed to pronounce it. Oh, is that right? Okay. So- I couldn't write it that way, but. Now, I know Chris from before. Uh, but if I didn't, uh, I would say, man, I like this guy already because he's got excellent choice in t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it from you. All right, right, right. <laughs> um, I should be wearing mine too. Um, all right, uh, so Chris is also the host of Innovation Crush interview series with more than 200 episodes. Maybe we'll touch on that a sure. little bit because it's really interesting too. He's the director of Omnicon Media Group's Ignition Factory, uh, previously did stand up, uh, screenwriting, etc. Uh, but let's start with your book, Chris. Sure. Um, so 10 essential rules for breaking essential rules. Yes. So uh, I, I, I note the irony. Okay, are we allowed thank, to- Thank you, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> are we allowed to break the rules in that are in this book? Of course. Okay. Of right. course. That's what, that's what it's all about. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, the book is just sort of um, a culmination of my experience as an innovator, as an interviewer. You know, the show Innovation Crush covers all the tenets of innovation. How it comes to life? Who's doing it? What is it exactly? Um, it's an industry buzzword, but what does it mean if you're a startup or a brand or an individual trying to make it happen um, in some way, shape, or form? So, uh, a through my experience, just in reinventing myself. You mentioned a couple of like career, you know, meanderings, but. Finding what's that sort of thread through it all, which for me, it's been storytelling. Um, but for someone like yourself, it might be just that empathy, right? Like empathy might be your thread through your whole mm -hmm. your whole career path, and how do you leverage that to actually bring innovation to life? So it's a lot of soft skills. It's not a lot of coding and technical jargon. It's we talk we do talk about empathy. We talk about inclusion. We talk about um, the ability. How do you put a team together? You know, to make innovation happen the right way. Um, but it's also a fun read. You know, I like to say that my my show is a cross between Fast Company and The Daily Show. Um, when you were on, we had some fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so you know, there's a comedic tint to the book. You know, there's some ironic. Every chapter sort of has this oddball metaphor. The first one is called "Swim Like an Otter," and then we tell the story of why that's a thing and 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 what it means. Okay, now you've uh, sparked my curiosity in a couple of different ways. So on the empathy front. Uh, you say you use empathy to create future forward experiences and products. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? The idea of empathy, and I'll give you a little bit of the backstory, right? That chapter, for instance, Swim Like an Otter. And I had interviewed this guy named Dan Goods, who's NASA's artist in residence. Um, so who would have thunk? NASA right, has I, an artist in residence, been there for 15 years, helping craft missions, turning their science concepts into art exhibitions, um, all sorts of redesigning like brainstorm rooms and all, and just a really amazing you know, portfolio of work inside NASA. And he said when he was in art school, he had a professor who was like, draw a picture of an otter, which he did, and he drew one and like turned it in. Our professor was like, "Okay, this is cool. Meet me in the pool tomorrow." And he goes, "Okay." So he shows up at the pool. The his professor shows him a video of an otter swimming. Now get in the water and swim like one. 
And you know, it gives you a different perspective when I'm creating something for a particular community or particular consumer to put myself in their shoes more so than reading data or relying on my work history. Oh, I've been uh, working in the sports industry for them. I get it. I, I know how people buy sporting goods. It's like, no, go rock climbing, go do the thing and see what it's like now. You know, one of the examples we use is like NASCAR. Like, sure, most people, there's a ton of ideas in how to enhance the NASCAR experience or do things for the fan or whatever, but it's a different story when you go sit in the stands and get debris on your face and stand for an hour and a half in a line and you know, you can't hear certain things because people are screaming or you get to understand what that consumer experience is like. And so empathy just becomes this big part of creation. Yeah, you know, now that you explain it, I totally get it. And uh, and it makes sense. It's one thing that we talk about on the show all the time. The hardest thing in the world is to escape your own perspective. Yeah. And and if you're trying to build something for other people, for your consumers, customers, viewers, whoever it might be, it would be incredibly important and relevant to see it from their perspective. Yeah. So uh, that's why I will now be leaving this interview and watching it from here. <laughs> like, so Chris. <laughs> so no, but that makes a ton of sense. So now, why is it essential to break rules in the first place? Because most of society tells you to follow rules. Yeah, I mean, well, it's the rule breakers who kind of what the squeaky wheel gets the grease. There's, mm -hmm. a little, there's a lot of quiet wheels, and then suddenly there's one that's making a lot of noise. That's a metaphor that got out of hand. But <laughs> um, this idea that you know, some of the like you take Uber for instance. Somebody went like, what if people were taxis? <laughs> and for everybody else is like, what are you talking about? They're not doing it. Even to this day, there's a lot still like legislation is trying to catch up to that rule being broken. You know, um, who's liable? Who's an employee? Who's not? Like these are it creates this whole other world of opportunity and problem and interest and industry. You know, that's just indicative of the shared economy. So you, you extrapolate that into Airbnb or Postmates, and it's like you know. Um, so you are breaking these rules essentially. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, uh, and people have done it over and over and over. You are, you know, that's one of the reasons I love talking to you is, is that, you know, you decided to like take a the whole different positioning on how news is delivered and who's delivering it and how they get it. Um, where everybody else was like, oh wait, what? Okay, uh, we're not. Nobody's done that before. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what true. And there's creativity, you know. And there's yeah. a different creative way of presenting a product, or you know, and that's why you create the copycat syndrome, right? There's. Yeah. Uh, other other uh, forms of doing the same thing. Yeah, so and I appreciate you saying that, and I really can relate to the book, and I could relate to what you're talking about because of that. So we we broke a lot of rules at the Young Turks. So we didn't have prompters, no teleprompters, and so for if you're a regular anchor and you come on here, you're like Jesus, what do I say, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and and then we didn't care about access. And I remember when one person told me, you know, uh, Harry Reid's upset at what you're saying, and he's not going to come on your show anymore. And I was like. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, then there goes Harry Reid, right? And we did a little bit of fun, I wouldn't say comedy, but we have fun and we right. laugh all the time on the show. And we did really serious stuff that nobody had combined that before, mm -hmm. right? And so, what I want people to understand and why this book's important is because. Sometimes rules make a lot of sense. I'm not we're not telling you to go break every rule, it's yeah. preposterous, right? But sometimes rules are antiquated. And people forgot why they're following that rule in the first place. Exactly. It's like the, the to get a little philosophical, but it's like the book, The Four Agreements. And if, if anyone's read that book, it's a pretty amazing, you know, uh, just a quick read and very philosophical, but it talks about like, 
We, we've all signed up in our life paths on agreements that were handed down generationally to generation. And you're like, wait, why? somebody goes, why are we doing this? You know, wait, are, look at that over there, did you see that? And, and then next thing you know, you take that thing and build something amazing out of it. So it does take that like first domino to fall. And these are sort of, what are those other things to keep in mind as you're doing this? Because now there's, if, break, if breaking the rules is becoming a little bit more status quo. Right, mm-hmm. innovation is kind of like doing this thing at a rapid pace, and everybody raises their hand; they want to do it, including clients I work with, including you know people I talk to on the street. Um, but then it's like the idea will only get you so far. Then you get into the shit. Can I cuss on here? You yes. get into the shit about actually how to make it happen, and that's when we start talking about things like micro failures, right? The you know everybody talks about failure in the sense of um, oh, I lost ten million dollars, you know, I had to move my family out of my house. But these micro failures are like. Hey, I sent Jenk 20 emails, he hasn't emailed me back yet. We had a great conversation at this restaurant. I was banking on that opportunity. Now I have to go and like spend my energy somewhere else. Meanwhile, my kid's doing bad in school and you know, I got a flat, there's just like these, you know, we t- the chapter is actually called Death by a Thousand Slaps. You know, mm-hmm. one slap doesn't hurt, right? Yeah. A thousand, you know, like, especially in succession. And most of us experience these little things. Well, we're experiencing right now the Trump administration. <laughs> well, that's, that's macro failure. <laughs> but it is a thousand slaps in a row. Yes, exactly. So, uh, but so, but uh, micro failures uh, are they also a good thing? Uh, um, they can be. I mean, everything you I mean you learn from, right? And you learn you learn resilience, right? We forget the number of things we've actually survived in the past. You know, mm-hmm. the minute something goes wrong, you feel like a failure. You're like, wait, I've come a long way. And then on the flip side, you forget to give yourself like the micro celebration. You know, the fact that you did have the meeting, the fact that you know somebody did respond to your pitch really well. So the fact that like all these like baby steps that get you into along the way, everybody's looking for the the big win, and you still have to like. Take into account the you know the, the smaller wins in, in between time. Um, I had the pleasure of I went to Michigan State, go Spartans, um, and so I, the Michigan school that can actually shoot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Shooting means something different these days, but yeah. basketball. Yeah. Um, but during the Rose Bowl, um, we won the hundredth Rose Bowl, and I got to interview the coach. Um, and I, one of their big things was like we celebrated every win, and it wasn't like the games. It was like you showed up on time. Like we are. Celebrate like they they had this energy about them just celebrating every single win, you know maybe not a scoreboard win but those small micro wins. So you know, yeah. and I think everything has its opposites. No, that makes sense, and it goes to two things, which is positive reinforcement uh, to get the right results, and also mm-hmm. um, every study on happiness says number one indicator is if you're grateful. So what I try to do with my kids uh, is. In the when we're having a meal together, I asked him, "What were you grateful for today?" Mm-hmm. And so we're not religious folks, so we're not saying grace or anything right. like that. But it's, that's our version of it. Yeah. And it'll be small things. Hey, I had my blankie when I was going to sleep, and it Is helped me you? sleep. Uh, yeah, it, okay. You your now, thanks for outing me. Appreciate it, Chris. <laughs> it's right, it's right there behind. <laughs> uh, raising your innovation IQ through emotional intelligence. Yes. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I think you have to understand, like, truly understand people. It goes into the empathy piece, but it also goes into like surrounding yourself with the right people. You know, understanding how culture works, and not like. You know how culture works, and like if you go into some other part of the world, but like the internal culture of a company, how you know, how do you bring that to life in a way that's fulfilling, and uh, you know, and understanding what. 
the needs of employees are, the needs of consumers are, and how things have, have changed, and really being able to to kind of be a heart first innovator. You know, um, you mentioned happiness. You know, I interviewed Moran Cerf, is won the the Moth's Grand Grand Slam. He's a, neuro, a bank robber turned neuroscientist. Go for wow. you. Okay. Um, but he, and so he said, like instead of hacking into banks, I hack into brains. Um, but he said the number one cause of happiness is sleep. You know, mm-hmm. is like more so than money or sex or any of these oh, things. Oh wow! It's uh-huh. the, it goes into how much you've rested, right? Because that affects every how everything else works. But if you understand that, it's like if I sit down with somebody on my team, I can better understand how to help them get to another level of input and output, you know, in their day to day stuff. And like, and that just maximizes everything that's on my innovation journey. So, um, so it's important to just understand like. How people respond to different stimuli. Yeah, so um, that's why, like those little things, it's important to read books like Crushing the Box to to learn things that you didn't know. Like for example, on on the sleep issue, I didn't know until recently that uh, LeBron James um, they asked the question, "How much sleep per night do you think he gets during the playoffs?" And I was like, I don't know, "He's probably working really hard. I don't know, six. He's got to get some sleep though, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to get too little." No, the answer is twelve. Okay, yeah. he gets 12 hours of sleep during the playoffs because it turns out sleep is a huge indicator of not only happiness but success and how well you perform, especially in a physical activity like basketball. And in the let's call it the innovation industry, if you're a founder or you know whatever your job is, like you almost pride yourself on the the. The level of work you do on any given day, mm-hmm. and you're like, you're like, oh, we work so hard, you know, I did 60 hours less. And actually, you're almost doing yourself a disservice by doing that, right? Yeah. Um, so it's and it's, maybe even your job a disservice sure. if you're not properly rested and then you're not productive enough. So in the book, uh, Colonel Sanders. Uh, so <laughs> was he? Did he really pump gas? He did. He he had his life was like pretty. I didn't interview him. He's he's dead. Yeah, yeah. I was sure of that. Um, but <laughs> you know, and people say like Colonel in the South from back in the day. So I don't know. No, that. he was like a hooligan. Like <laughs> I mean, he there was he was involved in some like he got an altercation with a rival like gas station and somebody got murdered and he was there and got questioned. It was like wow, it was pretty crazy. Was but, he the original Shug Knight? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> of chicken, um, it was like death row meets anyway. Um, no, so uh, yeah, that that was he had a, a slew of odd jobs. He was you know sales. He was he didn't even have his he was door to door shopping his chicken recipe in his 60s. It was like imagine somebody shows up to your door tomorrow and like uh-huh. hey taste this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. But see, you would have turned down Colonel Sanders. Um, what a monumental mistake. I, I could live with that mistake. Yeah, I could. but. Uh, he, you know, does he entered an industry like he broke a rule? Nobody was shopping food, you know, like trying to start a restaurant by going door to door and serving people, right? So um, he would literally bring his chicken to your door and say, "Hey, do you want to try?" Yeah, I mean, you think it's the era of door to door salesmen, right? So it's yeah, like it's I, not, I hear you. it's not a far, it's not too much of a departure, but yeah, like whether it's vacuum cleaner or pots and pans or whatever, that's how people show up, and so you know, he decided like. Why can't it work for food? Um, and slowly but surely, it just caught on, and now we all have heart disease. <laughs> well, good for you, Sanders. <laughs> Way to break the rules and our hearts. Oh, double pun there. All right. So, uh, speaking of the sleep and not sleep, um, you say there's no such thing as work-life balance. What, what is it? What do you mean by that? Because it's all just life. 
Um, that's a shout out to my uh, good friend of mine, Nicole Yershon, who used to run innovation for Ogilvy. And uh, she's been a guest on my show twice. And um, we were talking and you know, just her, she has a book that really focuses on her life, like her mom's passing and going through a divorce and running, you know, an innovation group for one of the largest agencies in the world. Um, and you know, she says there is no work life balance, it's all just life. So how do you, you know, sometimes you go like, oh, sorry, honey, I gotta go to work now and I can't do X, Y, and Z. And it's just constant flow of life. Most of us try to either separate them or a lot amount of time to each. You know, I probably talk to my wife, I don't know, 10 times a day, you know, just quick call or we chat on wow, Gchat. That's a lot. Um, you know, um, and then, you know, if I'm working late, I'll call my kids. Just mm -hmm. like there's this constant flow of, being attentive everywhere. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, I forget her name, the CEO of Pepsi. Um, she said- she's I also forgot her name. Yes, yes yeah. okay. Yes, you know, <laughs> uh, but- Only mildly successful. <laughs> exactly, uh, but speaking of her success, when she got that call to say that she was going to become the CEO of Pepsi, um, she said she was on her one of her normal nights working until 11 o'clock and she got the call, she was like, yes, and then went home and her mom lives with her husband and the kids and and she walks in, she's like, guess what? I'm gonna be the new CEO. And her mom says, that's good, we need milk. And <laughs> it's just like. That she sounds like, her mom sounds like my wife. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, we got this very great, amazing deal at Young Turks. She's like, yeah, yeah, sure you did. <laughs> like, okay, exactly. uh, but. Uh, you got to change diapers, so yes. let's up and at them. That's pretty, oh my, uh, yeah. I mean, even with this book tour, I was like, I guess where I'm going. She was like, uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. I thought. Yeah, and part of how I interpret that, Chris, is that- um, My wife hates me? Uh, no, not at all, are you kidding me? You call her 10 times a day, she must love you, that's, yeah, well, I think. It's all uh, arguments. <laughs> so, uh, don't tell my wife that. Um, so, anyway, but uh, part of how I interpret it, Chris, is that, I tell folks to do what you love, not to be inspirational and schlocky and stuff, but because it's real world advice, it's practical advice, because that's the thing that you could work 15 hours a day on. Right. And and so and you don't have to work 15 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. But you do have to care about something enough to want to get it done, to be passionate about it. And to even add to that, to like that is that is another piece of your happiness. So if I am schlepping away at a job that I hate, that's gonna go home with me too, right? It's gonna go into like me hanging out with my friends and telling them repeatedly how much my job sucks, right? That's it, right. It's, it's going to affect other things and vice versa. So, you know, most of us wanna go home happy and wake up happy to do whatever it is we're doing. And that's like everything, when we're not doing that 15 hours or whatever, it's, there still should be some air of happiness. So, you know, it's all interconnected. It is. So, like, recently I decided that when people ask me how things are going, I'm gonna answer, live in the dream. Okay. Right. And, and partly because it's true, this is the job I dreamed of, right. this is what, what I wanted. And partly to put positivity out there, but it's not, I, I really think that's why these, uh, the rules on breaking the rules are important. That's mm -hmm. why this conversation, I hope uh, it, you're getting something out of it. Because um, it, it's not just to be cute, it's to it's because you do, you get in a, either a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And so, and so you might as well put yourself in a virtuous cycle. And if you're in a vicious cycle, one of the things you could do is break the rules. And get out of them. And, that, and honestly, so you know, a lot. There's a lot of business cases in here, 
But I think, again, that idea of like work-life balance, it's, these are the same rules for life. Like if you want to change something, part of you know a phrase I love is, what got you here won't get you there. That's a business principle, that's a life principle. You know, I've been doing the things this way, this has got me to this level of success. But there's this other plateau that I want to reach in my relationship, in my business, in just whatever, my, my athleticism. And that requires a different regimen. And so this book, hopefully, you know, is that thing that gives you the mechanics to do that a little bit more naturally. And you know, not sort of fight it against, fight a battle. It's like I need to, and it becomes this like angsty sort of thing, like flexing your shirt. You like yeah, that? yeah. I wish I looked that good in that. I shirt, don't even but, know how. I, <laughs> but oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It looks pretty. <laughs> um, so, uh, but but to your point, uh, that's so true because we all change, but our situations also change. So, um, and, and it leads to frustration sometimes in all the either interpersonal or business relationships. So interpersonal, for example, it's a different marriage when you're first married than when you got two kids, because it's just a totally different <laughs> yeah. dynamic. It's a different environment, etc. It's a different uh, dynamic when you're running a small business versus a mid-sized business versus a big business, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It requires a completely different skill sets. Yeah. yeah, so you've not only with the book, but with the Innovation Crush interview series, you've talked to endless number of innovators, yeah. etc. So, are there? So, what? I don't know that this is a, a thing that could be summarized easily, but different lessons for small business owners, mm -hmm. mid business, big business, etc., or how to adjust, how to deal yeah. with all that change. Um, I, I I think it's just staying nimble. Like I, I think it's a life rule. There's no rigidity in anything. I mean, there's some values and principles you can stick to, but you know, who knows what's going to happen after Facebook's you know uh, thing today, right? What's yeah. going to change about how that company operates? And it, like I forget the comedian who said this, but he was talking about how Mark Zuckerberg he didn't sign up for this, right? He, he didn't sign up to be in front of Congress. He's like, yeah. I wanted to meet cute girls. Like that's that was his original starting point. Yeah. And so, but he's done a really great job of being nimble, right? And so when you when they removed the .edu from the requirement to log into you know your email address on to Facebook, and then it was so it just continued to evolve over time. And I think you know the companies that are rigid. Let's take Blockbuster, for instance, and Reed Hastings goes, hey guys, I got this thing, you know, you guys wanna buy it? And they're like, no, no, keep your little business, we're, we're doing fine, right? There's no, there was no adjustment. We even talk about that in the book, even from a business standpoint, is, you know, when you do see something like that, you have three options. It's acquire, mimic, or collaborate, right? But that's still change, it's still like, an ability to be nimble. Blockbuster didn't do any of those things. Right. So, um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a, and it's a hard thing to keep in mind, especially when, you know, if you're on the Series A or Series B and you're like going from 30 employees to 200 and uh, very quickly, like you can lose sight of a lot of different things. But yeah, yeah. and look, it's, I know that it's an old saying, but it's that's why it stuck around for a long time. The only constant is change. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can't adjust. The world is going to consume you. It's you're just you're not going to be able to adjust to anything. You can't right. stop time. You can't stop progress, and especially in digital media with Facebook and YouTube mm -hmm, changing their mm -hmm. algorithms fairly consistently. Yeah. If you're not on top of it and you're not constantly adjusting, good night, Irene. You're never going to make yeah. it. Yeah, and then you know even on top of that, there's this. Um, 
you know, I talk about this, the spirit of freedom, like keeping the spirit of freedom. I interviewed um, the director of innovation at Adidas, right? Mm -hmm. Won a CES Innovation Award for the connected soccer ball. And one of the questions I asked him was like, what, you know, performance metrics does the company hold you to? And he's like, none. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's nobody has that kind of leeway in there. Right. Even if you're the CEO, like you have some things you need oh, to report definitely. to. And he's like, I just show up with stuff, right? And the company trusts him to have some output. And so, you know, the opposite of that is I might be working on a project and I have two weeks and twenty thousand dollars, like to make mm -hmm. magic happen. And so, there's something to be said about some of the best innovation comes from constraint, like when you don't mm -hmm. have all the resources and you have to be inventive. Um, but that's also a lot of pressure depending on what the situation is. And so even in those pressure filled situations is keeping like a, an essence of freedom. You know, I've turned things in at the 90th second of like, all right, here you go. But like that whole process was remaining calm, keeping, you know, pretending I had two months, you know, and knowing that because the minute I put too much pressure on myself, I fold, and that's kind of like it's keeping this essence of freedom in how you go about creating. Um, and most of us don't have what John Werner had at, at Adidas, you know, to mm -hmm. just go like, hmm, what's yeah. your, I don't know, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> that would be nice, right? Uh, as the Taoists say, uh, be the river, uh, flow with uh, with what life gives you. So, um, Chris, let's talk about speaking of life. Talk, talk about your life. Yes. So you're in a really great spot now. You got a great book. You got the show. You're at uh, you know Omnicom. A great job. Uh, where did you start out, and how'd you get here? Whew! Um, I'm a, I grew up in Detroit, um, and um, I started off doing stand-up comedy, like professionally. So when I was 17, I was a freshman at, at Michigan State, and um, had always loved humor. And uh, I just ended up doing stand-up. Cedric, Cedric the Entertainer came to campus for um, just do, to do a show, and they were like, "We're looking for two open and acts." I was like, eh, "Let me try this thing." Mm -hmm. um, ended up doing that for seven years, won competitions, but then my senior year started doing like writing, you know, screenwriting, and came up with an idea for a sketch show. From writing, uh, moved to LA, worked on a number of projects that you may or may not know, or may not want to ever know about. Um, and then from writing, got into production, right? So. You start, I've created something for an audience. It's like, all right, cool. And I think I can know how to make this happen. And once you make it, you're like, I know who it's made for. Let me figure out how to market it, especially for smaller projects. Um, and then marketing just kind of became what it is today. There's a thousand and one different ways to reach consumers, engage them in the story. And so, again, like my thread has always been this kind of like storytelling piece of it. Brand wants to tell a story, a person wants to tell a story, even your LinkedIn profile tells a story of some sort. We're all marketing on some level or another. Um, and so, you know, what Innovation Crush allowed me to do was combine all those different, you know, pieces of myself. And I think that's another thing where, you know, you finally get to a place, at least in my path, was like a lot of frustration. Like, I, you know, did some, I had some cool milestones. But I was also like kind of frustrated. Like, it, I didn't feel like it was paying off the way I had, I had imagined. Um, until I learned, like, oh, here's here's the thread, and here's what's unique about my voice in this ecosystem. Right, so. and that goes to a lot of things we were discussing. You're open to change, and and by the way, even in in the story about Cedric the Antenna, you're willing to stand up, which takes a certain degree of courage, right. which allows you to be open to change and and move oh, as yeah. you did in your career to get to the spot that you're in. So I don't want to give away the whole book, but give me one more rule for breaking the rules. All right, let's see. Pick pick a number one through ten. Okay, seven. 
Oh. Put women in their place. What? Um, that's the name <laughs> no. of the chapter. Yeah, look right there, see? What does it say? Put women in their place. Yep. <laughs> not kidding. <laughs> okay, well, we're also selling the white Like, this is like, cut the snow. Now, that, the, this whole chapter actually explores this idea of inclusion. It's, mm -hmm. I mean it in the literal sense. And it is like, give, you know, we talk about this, it, it, the social conversation right now around inclusion is, oh, we, you know, we're doing an event, let's have a women's panel, or let's have a minorities and gaming panel. It's like, well, why don't we do away with those just put the woman on the panel, right? Because yeah. the minute I say, you know, we're going to do the Turkish, you know, panel, it's be, it now you'll, you'll have no one on the panel, <laughs> right? There'll be, be like one person Dr. on the panel, Oz and we're done. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. I've watched that panel. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, and that actually creates more separation, and to some degree. And granted, we need our space to have our dialogue, uh, uh, but at the same time, the minute I say they're different and there's their time right now, and then after the women's panel's over, now, hey, fellas, let's do our thing. We're gonna keep. So I've automatically sort of separated you from the, the mainstream. And the uh, norm, right? Right. The, right like, right. oh, we're having a thing about women, and so we're done with women. Now we're going back to the norm. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, and, and one of the points I try to make in, the, in, this, in this chapter is also like, we've all been discriminated against for something, for somebody like if you're. Over six foot two, somebody's like, hey, "Did you play basketball?" I'm like, "No, I didn't play. I'm 43 years old. I didn't play basketball. Uh -huh. Never." Uh, but I get asked that everywhere I go, That's right? Funny. And it's annoying. Yeah. And there's these nobody nuisances. looks at my body and say, "Did you play basketball?" <laughs> <laughs> I have the same problem. Um, so yeah, it's, and and so we talk about that, but then kind of wrap it in a nice bow where it's. You know, diversity is not just an ethnic and gender-based thing. It's diversity of thought. You know, when I talk about somebody like um, uh, Give Bluch, who's the head of innovation at L'Oreal, uh, and runs their Connected Beauty Incubator and created their um, augmented reality app, where you can try on any of their 350 products virtually. Um, he has a team of scientists and makeup artists and fashionistas and marketers, and they all like get in the room and like put their heads together. So there's this diversity of thought that comes into the room, and you reach a really good consensus from a creative output because you didn't miss anything, right? And somebody's gonna come thinking about it from skateboarding culture, another person's gonna think about it from scientific perspective, another person's like, I'm a parent, I don't want my kids watching that. Like, you know, yeah. just whatever the thing is. And I think the more diverse perspectives you bring to a table, the better your innovation output. Your clients are also diverse, and you want yep. to re represent their perspective as well. Yep. All right, uh, Chris Denson, everybody uh, grab the book, Crushing the Box 10 Essential Rules for Breaking Essential Rules. Yep. Love it. All right, great to see you. Chris. Thank you.